Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother, Michael, to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. The only spoilers beyond the chapters we discussed today will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, from a decade ago. Today, a bit of a change from our discussion last week. We are going through four chapters. We're going to discuss Tyrion 1, Jon 2, Daenerys 2, and Ned 2 of A Game of Thrones. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dan. How are you doing this? This I don't know how it is where you are. It's gloomy where I am. It's cold. And it has gloomy. been straight up rainy the whole time. I was watching some football earlier and it's snowing other places and it's not here. It's Good. just I, gross. I just think that whenever it's miserable weather where I am, it should be miserable for everyone everywhere. Well, it seems like you're getting your wish this time. What can I say? I like to bring <laughs> bring the awful weather to, to everyone that I can. Yeah, well, we have more exciting news than the weather. We have officially launched since we recorded our last episode. We've got, we've got two episodes live right now. We uh, we have a fancy logo that looks super professional. Uh, we have listeners that aren't related to us, which is pretty exciting. So thank you to all of you people. Uh, and, you know, subscribe, follow along with us, definitely read the books along with us and uh, really enjoy getting a little bit of attention. I have to say, I'm I'm so proud. I'm going to use the us version here. I'm so proud that we've done so much for this. You know, the website, which is coming down the line. We've got podcasts on all different types of podcasts, uh, you know, providers and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, Spotify, yeah. Apple Podcasts, all the other ones that people who can't afford Spotify or Apple Podcasts use. Apple Podcasts is free, Michael. Well, some people are too poor for it anyway. Um <laughs> speaking from experience here yeah it's like as i like scrape the internet for freer things than free um we've, we've got a good amount uh today for this episode that we're going over yes we uh, do. lord knows we left off on quite the, the cliffhanger or uh cliff plummeter if you yeah, will ex explicitly not a hanger unfortunately yeah, yeah slipper uh cliff, cliff dropper but I thought I, I thought it might be worthwhile to kind of take a breath here in, in this moment. I know that we're only you know now episode five. There's plenty more book to come, uh, and and a lot more that's going to add context and all of this. But it, what we've what we've gone through so far has been this exploration of the families of this world, uh, and just coming through it and getting a sense of who they are and where they are and. And then even one step deeper, who are the personalities of these families uh, and, and how can we understand the families better from that? We have Ned and the Starks, Ned Stark and his family of Starks up in Winterfell in the north. Makes uh, it sound like a band. Yeah, Ned and, Ned the, and the Starks. Uh, they're right there with Benny and the Jets. Um, but so far, what we've seen out of them is a deep sense of honor and commitment to sort of heritage and past and a sense of righteousness. Uh, there is this sort of like holy righteousness that comes from this sort of Stark perspective. The Starks break into sort of their own individual unique personalities. It's a large family. Ned Stark himself is this sort of wizened old warrior who is now trying to settle into his uh, you know, his his elderly years, if you will, his twilight years, I suppose. He's got a wonderful wife named Catelyn, who is super devoted to him, uh, but a little more focused on, on some of the faith aspects of her own upbringing in the Tully family, as well as uh, she uh, is a little a little harsher than Ned is. She clearly doesn't have the, the fondest 
feelings for her bastard son that she her her husband's bastard son john snow uh the family ranges from quite quite young to older uh we we have the Baratheons, who are kings down from the uh, from King's Landing, they yes. took over and raided the the Targaryens who were there before as the Mad King. Daenerys is a Targaryen along with her brother Viserys, who are uh, trying to stay safe from the the new kings that took over from Robert, and then uh, you know stay safe. But Viserys is trying to build an army with Daenerys marrying Khal Drogo of the Dothraki uh, and moving up. Um, we're now getting into a point where there's a little more specifics going on. Uh, we're learning a little bit more about some subterfuge. Maybe some families have other intentions than what one family might want or anything like that. So we find ourselves now, the king from King's Landing has come to the north to ask Ned Stark to be the hand of the king, his right-hand man. He's doing this because the last hand of the king died. And we found out through secret messages between Catelyn and her sister that we think he was assassinated, uh, bum, specifically bum, bum. by the queen, specifically by Cersei. This seems crazy. There's no way we'd believe it, except we then find that uh, young Bran Stark saying goodbye to his home in Winterfell before he goes to King's Landing with his father, hatches red and barehanded jamie lannister and cersei lannister red-handed and bare-assed that's right the twins of the lannister family uh you know doing the dougie i think as they refer to it i don't think anybody book. refers to it that way in this book or in the real world i think you're the first one to say that hey dan uh let me teach you how to no never mind that's just uh, a dance move it's terrible um and this is where it puts us bran catches them and jamie because he loves cersei shoves Bran out a window to his supposed death. Uh, and that's that's where we uh, we find ourselves now. Yep. And that brings us to Tyrion. And like you said, this is Tyrion 1 that we're on right now. We've met Tyrion only briefly. He's had only the briefest of moments, which was a tiny conversation with Jon Snow, where basically he kind of seemed like this interesting jester of a character, the sort of like wit of the king, if you will. Uh, and he was offering some interesting insights for John. So basically saying, you know, it it's it doesn't matter how others are perceiving you. Make sure that you can play because they're defining perception about you. You can you can work to control that and uh, and kind of own that power a little bit. Yeah. And from there, we now have him continuing in, in this first interior one that we read. We really have him sticking with this same type of wit and and wise Wise wisdom is what I'm going to say it's and stand by. Interesting you say that. All right. We'll have to get into it as we go. Absolutely. So, yeah, Tyrion won. Tyrion, uh, we, we learned that he is quite quite the, the book, book nerd. Book uh, nerd and night owl, yeah. Doesn't sleep, stays up, reading books. Uh, and then he, he makes his way. It's now breakfast time. He's making his way outside, and he comes across... Prince Joffrey and uh, Sandor, Sandor Clegane. Clegane? Clegane. Yes, Clegane. Yeah, before he goes outside, he finds Septon Chael, uh, who I think we're meeting for the first time, but mm -hmm. he is the priest at Winterfell uh, for the religion in the South. So like Septa Mordain was the nun equivalent. The Septons are the priests. Uh, and Septon oh, Chael has fallen asleep reading something very boring, uh, which is a fun introduction to a chapter where not a ton happens because, you know, maybe we're the Septon Chaels here. <laughs> yeah 
Sure. Uh, but that's about it. Deceptive. <laughs> uh, he kind of wakes him up and says, "Put the book away. Be careful." We get a sense of how smart Tyrion is, and and uh, and and just how much he has read. It just kind of comes out. But then he and goes also out- how uh, how in depth and and how interesting the Winterfell libraries are specifically. Mm. He just points that out. Just a you know a little bit of context there, but they've got a great library. They've got some rare stuff. But he goes out and he finds Joffrey and uh, and the Hound uh, kind of goofing around with each other, if you will. But we find out that Joffrey has yet to go visit and offer condolences uh, to to the Starks about Bran. We find out through this that Bran hasn't died. Uh, yes. He's in a coma. And it's been about four days, I think we find out later. Yeah, it's definitely been some time. Uh, there's also mention of, uh, I think it's here, but... Well, I, it actually, actually comes later, so we'll, I'll come back to that later. But okay. uh, but we find that Bran is still alive and that Joffrey is a tool bag. Uh, he hates, despises, what was it? He, he will not abide the wailing of women. Yes. Why should he go and offer apologies? And not only do we find that Joffrey is, continues to be a giant tool bag, but that uh, Tyrion doesn't really care and, in fact, slaps Joffrey twice. Yes. Uh, no fear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Joffrey's really doubling down here on the attitude uh, that we've seen from him before. Uh, like you said, he refuses to go and see Lady Stark or visit the sickbed, which is obviously very disrespectful from mm-hmm. the Crown Prince when he's in the environment. He also starts off as the conversation Tyrion walks in on is Joffrey saying how annoyed he is that Bran's wet wolf won't stop howling. Mm. And uh, Sandor offers to go kill the wolf, which Joffrey thinks is a great idea. He has a little little line, send a dog to kill a dog, mm. uh, and says that the Starks wouldn't even notice one missing. And Tyrion starts giving him barbs before he then slaps him. He says, you know, it seems like you can't really count because there are only six. So it really feels like they would notice one of those disappearing there. Uh and then there's there's another moment where Sandor is uh, really aping Joffrey's toolbagishness because he does a a bit that is apparently a recurring comedy bit of his, where he pretends to not see who's talking because Tyrion, if you didn't know, is short. Well, you and, know, I I had a question about this actually. Tyrion's a dwarf, and I get it; they're making fun of him. How does Tyrion reach Joffrey's face? Yeah, we do hear that that Joffrey's tall. You know, I think the height difference is probably close enough that he can reach him to slap him, or maybe Joffrey's sitting down or something. I hadn't really thought about the mechanics of this. I like maybe to think that to jump. He makes the hound lift him. He just gives him eyes. He's like, you know. But I thought, okay, I could so- see that. Something that I did <laughs> think that was really interesting out of this relationship that you, here you have this. I think he even refers to himself later in this chapter as one of the grotesques. You know, he's clearly not a Jamie or Cersei Lannister or even a Joffrey. I don't I don't remember what the color of Tyrion's hair, but he doesn't strike me as pale, blue-eyed, you know, delicate complexion by any he's, means. He's very blonde, like almost white hair. So like oh, not, right. in a, not in a not in a Prince Charming way. You know, I think of Jamie Lannister as like old Disney quintessential movie, yeah. like the yellow gold shining hair. Uh, whereas I think Tyrion is more like washed out almost. But I, and I'll say though, that, that Tyrion, as we already found out from the previous John chapter, you know, Tyrion clearly understands his role and his place here. I think he has a real sense that he will, no one's ever going to look to him to try to be the next King of anything. He, but he really understands also the value of his intelligence 
He knows that his position as a Lannister, as, you know, one of these siblings is part, you know, he's not somebody that the Hound can just beat up on Joffrey's whim. He does hold stature and he wields it in a, in a really smart way. He understands form and the role of form and the need for Joffrey or someone like Joffrey to show face, to be a part of this because there's a political necessity. I don't, I don't find anything about Tyrion to be uh, heart. You know, I don't, I don't feel anything from his character as of yet being like, he's such a big heart. He knows that Bran or even Catelyn in this moment need this loving support from Joffrey. No, it's much more that he has this sense, this clean sense of duty to the roles that we fill because there's, there's value to come from it later. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. He is identifying a political role to play. And he's not even telling Joffrey, do this because it would be the nice thing to do. He tells him, do it because it's expected of you. Right. And uh, that's an understanding of their role in things. I, I, I like that you're pointing back to the conversation with John, though, because something that sticks out to me here is that Tyrion... Uh, really gets annoyed quite quickly at this, frankly, very stupid comedy routine that Sander is doing, which is the exact opposite of what he told John. He told John, you know, wear it as your armor. Nobody can use it to hurt you. And now the very first time that we're seeing his stature be brought up in conversation and used against him, it, it seems to work. You know, he's not losing his mind, losing his temper and, and really mm. going tilt, but it does get to him. Um, and so, you know, there's a sense that maybe the conversation he was having with John was more aspirational than something that he has adopted to live by. Interesting. Himself. I like that. I, I will also add too that, you know, more than I saw him having such a, a awful reaction to this dumb joke, I, I found him, not that he wasn't doing that, but but I found that. Tyrion seems to have a really negative reaction to entitlement, you know, and I think he gets a strong sense of entitlement from Joffrey and via Joffrey into the Hound without knowing much about, and again, I'm going to say the name terribly, Sandor Clegane, you know, the Hound you himself. Oh, yes. But without, without knowing much about his own backstory, besides the few sentences that have already been mentioned, he killed somebody at the age of 12. I, I can't help but get the sense that this is someone who fills the role given to him you know, for what it is that he does as a bodyguard style, you know, I can only assume that if the, the, his, you know, his Lord that he had to serve was not a Joffrey, but was a much more, you know, flat faced, serious and honorable man that he wouldn't be playing these jokes. I find that, right. I get the sense that Sanders probably playing off of Joffrey's, you know, attitude more than he is a bully himself. Although he might yeah. be, I don't have, we haven't met him enough to, to know. Yeah. That's an interesting observation. The conversation happens between Tyrion and Joffrey and to some extent Sandor uh, Clegane as well. But from that, he goes to breakfast. He goes and joins Jaime and Cersei and uh, their younger children uh, at, the, at the breakfast table. Yeah, there's and, a nice little exchange before we get to that that I like okay, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of Sandor, like you were just saying, really filling that role with Joffrey, where after Tyrion slaps Joffrey a couple of times and runs away, Joffrey runs away then, Sander turns to him and says, the prince will remember that little lord. And Tyrion says to him, if he forgets, be a good dog and remind him. So, you know, this is a little bit of, of a threat from Clegane. You know, this is my charge. This is somebody I'm tasked to protect. And Tyrion is saying, you should be doing more of what I'm doing to get him in line and to follow along. So mm -hmm. it's just a nice little exchange there. It also, and, it, and not to dwell too much on this, such a short moment that happened between th these three characters, but there's something so very real life facing about a lot of this sort of intensity, this, you know, there's plenty of times in, in jobs and in everyday professions 
where we can feel entitled to our positions, but there are those who really understand that without them there, things fall apart, that they have, there's a reliance on them to keep the, the wheels turning. And, uh, and, and I think it's just really clear that Tyrion feels himself and understands that he has this position right now. There is, mm -hmm. we don't, I don't know what it is yet, but I get yeah. the sense that you don't slap the crown prince even if you're part of his family, unless you really understand that you're an essential part of whatever machin you know, machinations are going on. That's interesting. We'll have to keep an eye out for whether, yeah. uh, whether Tyrion is playing some political role beyond simply being a Lannister. And I'd add to that too, that you know Tyrion's role, as I remember it from the TV shows, is that I don't remember it much. For the little, the, the, the short amount of the seasons that I saw, he was in the position that he was always in. He was a member of the Lannister family and because of that had high esteem but that's really how i remember him and not much else I'm, i'd be curious to see if his if there's perhaps there's a little bit of you know i don't know if it's it's direct enough to be foreshadowing but if there's a little bit of like oh look at how how uh how firm he feels in his position that he can do this i wonder if his usefulness disappears at some point that he no longer has the ability to slap joffrey around because if something should happen or or if I, he already doesn't have it if he if it hmm. turns out he doesn't have that position then the uh the line that the prince will remember that could be foreshadowing in a different sense, that this is not actually something Tyrion can get away with, but yeah. we'll, we'll find out. So from that conversation, Tyrion continues on his merry way towards breakfast, where he joins Jamie and Cersei and their children. Common and Marcella, yeah. Joffrey is obviously not here. Uh, yes, right. I, right. Joffrey being Cersei's child, which I forgot. Yes. And I'll be honest, it's kind of a boring breakfast. Uh, he catches... A look, he, 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 I think that we see a little bit more of Tyrion's intelligence, uh, if not political awareness. You know, he's, he's very direct in and intentional about what he's using for phrasing. He catches this sort of fleeting look between Jamie and Cersei and is starting to hear their desire for Bran to be dead and not wake up and is starting to seem to get his own. I don't know if he has a sense of anything that had to do with the reality of the situation from the previous chapter, but perhaps a sense of there's something else going on here, uh, which I thought was was interesting. But besides that, breakfast was there wasn't too much else that I really took away from their conversation. Right. Well, let me hi highlight a couple moments for you. Uh, first of all, you know, Tyrion is the one who shares with us the news that it seems like Bran's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, there there hasn't been a change in his condition, which after four days, the maester, Maester Lewin, says is a good thing. If he's not weakening now, right. then we think we can keep him alive. Uh, and Tommen and Marcella are very happy to hear that. Um, Tyrion also shares with us that although... Bran, we think, will not die now. His back and legs are broken, and he is likely going to be paralyzed and will not walk again. He's going to be one of the grotesques. Yes. Um, and Cersei has a brief conversation uh, following on Joffrey, talking about how the wolves are annoying her, and she doesn't want them coming south. Jamie says it's going to be difficult to stop the Starks from bringing the wolves south with them. Tyrion mentions this is the first time we hear from him that he's planning on going to the wall. Yes. Um, and there's just a fun little conversation between him and Jamie here, which then prompts Cersei to leave with the kids because Tyrion's being gross. But Jamie says, oh, are you going to take the black? Uh, are, are you planning on joining the Night's Watch? Which I think is obviously a little, little brotherly dig at Tyrion. But Tyrion says, what, me, celibate? The whores would go begging from Dorne to Casterly Rock. <laughs> no, I just want to stand on top of the wall and piss off the edge of the world. 
So, you know, Tyrion's really exploring here. It's not just the books. He wants to go see the, the wonder of the world that the wall is while he has the opportunity. And this is when Jamie and Tyrion have a brief exchange, just the two of them that you were just referencing, where, where Jamie kind of reiterates from earlier in the conversation that he thinks Bran should just be dead. He specifically says Ned should mercy kill Bran. Uh, worse than a cripple, a grotesque, give me a good clean death. And Tyrion speaks up on Bran's behalf, kind of similar to what we saw between him and Jon in terms of speaking up for the outsiders in society. And says, speaking for the grotesques, I beg to differ. Death is so terribly final while life is full of possibilities. I like then that uh, Tyrion says that he's he'd be excited to hear what Bran has to say when he wakes up, which feels like uh, an intentional dig towards Jaime and Cersei's eye contact uh yeah maybe there like, it seems like he's prying at more than he cares about brand's health that he's prying a little bit at, and trying to poke at his brother a little bit uh, well so i, I want to hear your thoughts on this because this is a weird moment we mm -hmm. get Tyrion making this comment after like you said seeing the things that he's been seeing between jamie and cersei and uh, jamie asks whose side are you really on and mm -hmm. Tyrion grins wolfishly and says, you know how much I love my family. So what's going on here with Tyrion? What does he think, what does he know or suspect? Is he a secret agent? Is he opposing the Lannisters? Is he right. just, uh, I don't know, putting a, a little elbow in Jamie's ribs and giving him a hard time? It's a very cryptic statement and conversation from him. So what are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's interesting the way that you're phrasing it, because I definitely had a reaction and some thoughts about where's this attitude coming from. But I, I haven't yet found I haven't I haven't yet found any reason in the book as you know, as to date of, you know, deception from Tyrion's side or that he's some political enemy to the Lannisters or even to to the Baratheon, Robert Baratheon and the king. I, I, what I was thinking about him was how different the world must be, the, how unique the perspective must be when you know that based on how you look or based on your birth, uh, that that the the treasures that exist are not for you. I think that Tyrion has the, the sense that I'm getting is that Tyrion has a real healthy and firm understanding that he has been the luckiest of dwarves to be right. born into a Lannister family and not murdered and not just thrown, you know, just not, not mercy killed yeah. as Jamie's saying, but he also knows that if you know, this is my, obviously just my, my perspective. Right. But I got 100%. the sense that he must know that let's say the Lannisters lose power tomorrow. There's no victor. Who's going to look at Tyrion and say, well, because you're a Lannister, you know, you deserve some castle in the East. You know, why don't you just hold this, you know, state here, or whatever it must be, it's like that he is one of the grotesques, that he is something of this abnormal. And I wonder if that just really changes the perspective. There's no amount of murder that could happen in the lineage towards kingship that's going to put Tyrion the dwarf as, you know, Tyrion the imp as king. There's nothing that's going to kind of protect him besides his ingenuity, besides his wit, and probably besides his unique perspective from, pardon the phrase, his unique vantage point. And so that's kind of what I get. I, I think that that he really must have this very jester-like, you know, perspective, this sort of kind of excited to watch the world burn type of perspective. But like, okay, I mean, I, I get that. And I think that that's interesting. But doesn't, if he's in a position with a lack of personal power, and, you know, it certainly would be even worse if he was a commoner, 
But even within the Lannisters, you're, what you're saying here is, or what you're picking up on, which I don't think is is a bad thing to pick up on, but what you're coming away with is that he is in a position of less influence by virtue of being one of the grotesques, by virtue of being uh, an outsider, which I think is fair. And certainly shows up in his relationship with Cersei. But then isn't it all the more important to not antagonize family, not antagonize the people who do have these necessary ties to him? Because he's kind of, he's either openly winking and hinting at Jamie that he would not be their man in a, in a time of crisis. He is not somebody who is going to be working for the Lannister cause. Uh, and that's at one extreme. But even at the least, at the most charitable thing, charitable reading, he is taking shots. He is, he is annoying. He is a, a thorn in the side of Jamie, who is not only his brother, but by his own description, the only person who's been nice right. to him. So if he doesn't have the authority, certainly he doesn't have the, the physical ability to stick up for himself in this martial society, but he also doesn't seem to have the authority by virtue of position that he would otherwise have if he was able-bodied. Shouldn't he be being nice to Jamie? I'm your right-hand man. I'm here for anything you need. I don't know. I mean, like, I really think that touching on some things that we've already said, you know, I really do. And there's nothing to, 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 to prove this yet in the books, but, you know, I really do think that he must be bringing something to the table that does give him protection. Uh, you know, whether it's his wit and ingenuity, or maybe he's an incredible politician. But again, you know, you don't just slap the crown prince and get away with it, you must have. But I think also another aspect here is, is I do wonder if there was some point in his own personal and character development at some point pre this book, pre where he is now, where he came to an understanding for himself that, you know, he can either accept being this, this outcast and sort of take with grace whatever's offered him thank you so much i'm so happy to be here thanks for not murdering me or to just take it the opposite direction and say you know what i'm going to push this as hard as i can because every day there's a question of whether or not you know somebody's going to look at me and say nope today's the day that you're not you're you're so much of a grotesque that you're not worth it anymore right okay Uh, that's interesting that so that's that's my my thinking right now and I'm interested to to see his character and see more from his character's perspective because of how unfettered he is to the the more specific political roles that we're seeing other people fill. Mm-hmm. He's not a king's guardman. He's not, you know, uh, like the royalty by any means. He's, you know, he he's definitely an off an outsider by 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 every definition. Yeah. Okay. In terms of the specifics, though, so, you know, we have that he picked up on this look between them, but we don't get anything explicit. Mm-hmm. What do you think Tyrion knows or suspects here? I wonder if he knows that they're sleeping with each other just okay. by virtue of being a sibling of theirs and, and you know, growing up with them. I wonder how much right. is, is all that hidden. And I wonder if through that, that's always a s- suspicion that somebody's going to catch this, okay. you know, and uh, here they are saying, we hope this boy doesn't wake up and how terrible that is. And, and I wonder so if that's saying like, Tyrion's hearing that and thinking, oh, maybe, maybe Bran caught them. Uh, yeah. And that's why. Okay. I wonder if he's even leaping all the way there, but I wonder if he's starting to make a connection. My right. siblings, maybe he knows that the siblings sleep together and that they are always hyper vigilant about making sure that whoever may find them 
uh, yeah. never speaks to it. Okay. I mean, obviously we know that that's what happened. So well, I don't right. want to put yeah, too much of that in, but it's interesting to see him picking up on these under the current things and then uh, taking this shot at Jamie that indicates he knows something, but we're not sure what he knows. So that brings us to John 2, the next chapter. And this is another week, 10 days or so later after the Tyrion chapter. So we're getting these time jumps here, but Bran is still not up and about. And it starts off with John going to see Bran and to visit him. Uh, and Catelyn is in the room still. She hasn't left since Bran fell and was found. Uh, she has set up entirely in that room, ate and slept as much as she has been able to in there. And as a result, John has not come to see Bran at all, even though this is his beloved little brother. I think it's interesting, you know, clearly in, in, in going off of where, where you're taking it, you know, we find out very quickly that he's avoided going to see Bran because of Catelyn. And we all of a sudden see just how much animosity there really is between Catelyn and John. John being the bastard son of Catelyn's husband and over I'm taking from other things that have been said in previous chapters but overly accepted and allowed into this family by her perspective right. you know Catelyn as a character has been a real loving doting intelligent you know sharp-minded woman and in her conversations I I was shocked by just how much animosity was there uh it yeah. really surprised me you, you need to put that into context though she is mourning in effect even though bran is not dead uh and has been a disaster i mean the physical descriptions we get of here are so stark uh i need to stop using that word clearly but it's it's it so, fits. yeah it's such an image of a, a broken mother you know so i have to wonder how representative this is of their broader relationship and how much of this is real emotions that she feels towards John, but coming to the surface and being more acute and more emphatically expressed than it would be in a normal time. Because she really does have such a strong reaction to him here. I think, yeah, I understand that. And I know too, one of the lines that stood out, you know, one of the moments that stood out in this, mo this moment between the two of them, John and, and Catelyn, uh, is Catelyn saying in this sort of kind of cliched moment of, of explanation saying, you know, I prayed for this. I didn't want Bran to go down to, to King's Landing, like, and kind of almost alluding to this idea, like maybe feeling guilt that she was asking for a way for Bran to stay and that this is the answer to her prayers. Right. Um, and so I can understand this sort of like, like being flustered, being totally wrecked. But I will say that my, my favorite part was uh, where he goes to say goodbye and she calls him, she says, John, and he says, "What you know, the, he, he, we hear his thought, wow, she's never used my first name before. Yeah. And then she goes, fuck you. And then, <laughs> uh, I don't think that's a her, I don't think that's a direct quote. No, it, it should, we'll, we'll it get to that in you. a moment. Yeah. It should have been you. Yeah. Uh, Which is a, a crazy thing to say to a child. And that's part of why I think it needs to be coming in part from the emotion. Because uh, Catelyn does not, we have not seen anything from her before now that indicates this is something she would say right even to john i mean it's so beyond the pale i'll i'll add to and and i was thinking about this just a moment ago in our conversation about Tyrion, but i think it was interesting to see in a lot of the conversation we just had about Tyrion was really colored for me by this moment with john what does it mean to be part of a family that you're not a hundred percent integrated with yeah. what you know here we have 
And John is in a position where he's not a grotesque. He is finding this avenue away to go, you know, to to be part of the Night's Watch and go up to the wall. But I, I imagine, I can only imagine that if everything in this story was exactly the same, except John was missing, you know, an arm, right. you know, and all of a sudden couldn't fulfill like nightly duties of some way, he would just be totally stuck in sort of, I'm sure, like the basement of Winterfell, not allowed to go down to King's Landing, hated by his mother and not wanted and conventionally useless. Well, yeah. not his mother, crucially, but yeah, right, right, right. No, I think that's really interesting. And that actually gets to, I'm going to skip ahead here a bit to my theme for, for these two chapters here, because you started off in talking in our recap about how we're really getting these family dynamics. And I mean that in the sense of dynamics between the families. These are the players that we're being introduced to. We've got the Starks, the Baratheons, the Lannisters, the Targaryens, and these are these institutions. And these chapters back to back really do such an interesting job of breaking down the monolith where we do mm. not have people who are necessarily aligned in interests or aligned in emotion or who even like each other very much. And so right off the bat, we have Tyrion and Joffrey. We have the older mm. uncle dealing with the younger child. He is really a child, but also there's the other power dynamics that cut the other direction where Joffrey is the crown prince and Tyrion is not. And Joffrey is able-bodied and tall and muscle muscular and able to fight, and Tyrion is not. And we have Tyrion slapping Joffrey, and uh, and mm -hmm. clearly there's some animosity there, uh, even if it's just a petulant child versus a, a stern teacher, somebody who's bringing more rules and discipline yeah, structure, to, yeah. to to somebody who otherwise doesn't have it. And then we see it escalate with Tyrion and Cersei. Uh, where they have a lot of barbs going back and forth and seem to really not like each other, while at the same time in the other direction, we have, have plenty of contexts within the Lannister family where Jaime and Tyrion are close until that moment at the end of the chapter, and Tyrion seems to get along great with the other two kids who seem very nice and pleasant and not a pain in the ass in the way that Joffrey is. And then similarly on the Stark side, we have Jon and Catelyn going at each other here and really mm -hmm. having these problems immediately followed by John's love for Rob and John's love for Arya. Yeah. And so we're starting to get this introduction uh, from the macro scale politics into the micro scale. We have yeah. uh, at every level, we have intrigue and espionage and hatred and love and emotion and all sorts of motivations where everyone involved wants something different and is looking for something different. And we have that at the big level and we have it writ small. And you know, so it's something interesting to see that. Something that stood out for me in, in some of these engagements, because you know, like you were saying, right? Like John has that conversation with Catelyn as he goes to see Bran to say goodbyes. It's a nasty conversation. Uh, but then he goes and sees Rob. You know, Rob kind of finds him. They they bump into each other basically. Um, but something that I thought was interesting, it was a very quick conversation between the two of them as Rob is preparing for everybody to leave. John obviously is getting himself ready to leave. But an interesting part of the conversation was Rob pauses for a moment and hesitates and starts to stammer, you know, oh, I know you just went to see Bran. I hope my mother wasn't too nasty to you. Uh, it's specifically, John thinks Rob can tell that something is off. Right. And when they have that moment where John's like, he can tell I'm upset by something. And then Rob says, was it my mom? Right. And I just like, and, and I thought there were two things that were interesting. One, how aware Rob already is of his mother's attitude towards John. 
which I don't think was veiled to begin with, but it's just clear now that Rob knows it. But the other side is John's response. He's not playing the politics of this game, nor is he trying to find retaliation. No, she was wonderful. Right. We, we had a good conversation. That is all. And maybe that's the politically astute thing to do in the moment, but I also just thought it was a real statement of John's maturity about his situation. He understands also that he's leaving. Why try to burn you know, relationships between Rob and his mother in this moment? Which I just thought was really interesting to see that, that depth of his character there. Yeah, and I think we see that throughout this chapter with him, that he seems to mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. an emotional intelligence and an ability to hold things in like that. In the conversation with Catelyn, you know, she, he comes to say goodbye to Bran because he's leaving and he comes to express his love and say how how much he wants for Bran to be better and to wake up and gets nothing but this vitriol from Catelyn except for the moment where Catelyn muses out loud about the idea that maybe she brought this upon Bran and he tries to make her feel better he right. reaches out in that moment despite the difficulties that they have between them and says it wasn't your fault and even then Catelyn snaps right back into hate uh, her eyes were full of poison. I need none of your absolution, bastard. And then he, he says, at this point, he doesn't get into it with her. He just turns to leave. And that's when she tells him it should have been you. And so, you know, it's such a, a strong moment for John of being the one above the fray. Uh, yeah. And not ripping into Catelyn or having that fight. And I some of that is, you know, she is a, a parental figure, certainly Ned even more so. Uh, in John's life, just in the sense of uh, authority and structure, that this isn't necessarily something, I, we haven't seen it straightforward, but I can see Ned whipping out some harsh discipline for mm. talking back to my wife. Um, so there, I'm sure there are other things that go into it, but it does seem like John has an awareness of what's happening and where he stands. I think so much in agreement with what you're saying. And and again, even a stronger relationship between the Tyrion character and John, which Tyrion even spoke about when they first met in John 1. But I think John 2, John 1. Uh, but this is, uh, John two. this is John 2. But I'll I'll add as well that I think that there's a really nice comment about the human condition being made here. I think a lot of times we as individuals are constantly looking for the structure of our lives to influence the way we think about our situation. And you look at people like Catelyn saying, you know, the structure of my life should not include this bastard child, should include a healthy brand, shouldn't, you know, in all of this. And she is refusing to deal with the reality of the situation. She does have a bastard child from her husband. She does have this, you know, this, this broken child of Bran. Uh, but so far, it seems like Tyrion and Jon are the two to really, these two characters, to understand it's about relationships much more than it's about the the context of relationships that needs to be understood and respected to a certain level. And I, ju I just think it's interesting and I, and I love to see it. Absolutely. So that brings us to the third interaction of the chapter, which is uh, John actually asks Rob, you know, don't tell mm -hmm. Uncle Benjamin um, that I'm, I'm not ready yet um, so that I don't have to leave. And then he goes to find Arya and he brings her a present. He finds her repacking because she took all of her things and tossed them into the <laughs> chest. And Septimordian got mad at her. She's got to fold. She's got to learn to fold, man. You know, she says, and I think this is a totally fair argument she's like what's the problem it's all going to get messed up on the way anyway it's going to be bouncing around in this coach like why do i have to make it neat now and i feel that i'm a folder i don't <laughs> i i i love now too as i get older you know and try and pretend to be an adult i'm also in that level but like by the time i get there it's always a little messy anyway so why did i waste the time 
I like something I think about. I like this little interaction with Aria. Uh, I, I thought again, the whole chapter as a whole with John, I think late, like you even just touched on, it's just three very rapid interactions. It shows yes. three different types of relationships. The one with Aria, I think is a really nice extension from Aria one where she bumps into John as they're watching sort of the sword fighting happen uh, in, in the courtyard. Uh, but, but I don't think there's much that happens here aside from the gift uh, we just are seeing this this you know deeper into this relationship. I really love the gift was a really nice sword. Sh- yeah. Small for Arya also being small. I love that all great swords have names, and I loved how astute that this name was for Arya and her personality, being the the awful seamstress that she is. Uh, it gets the the incredible name of Needle. Yeah, and he uh, gives her her first lesson so that she can be a better swordsman. Then she is at needlework. Uh, stick them with the pointy end, which seems like good advice to me in sword fighting. And so we have just to give a bit of a con- contextual moment here. We're two of the four chapters in for this epi- this episode, uh, but we have Tyrion, you know, with his family and the Lannisters as they're in this moment leading up to leaving. Now we have the moment of departure for John and Rob working with the others that are about to depart. We now, from the north, travel across the seas over to Daenerys. But before we get to that, just a, a couple of last notes here. Um, because this conversation with Arya is really nice. It starts off with Nymeria is doing Arya's packing for her. And we have this little sibling banter, which is really sweet about the packing. Uh, and then John gives her the present. Um, he specifically mentions the Bravos use swords like this in Pentos and Mir and the other free cities. It won't hack a man's head off, but it can poke him full of holes if you're fast enough. So we've talked about the free cities before. Of course, Pentos, we know quite well. We have actually spent some time there. That is where Danny is currently. Um, so it was, it's just wanted to point out that cohesive aspect of things. And then we wrap things up. You know, we talked about the hostilities within these families, but it's a very sad goodbye between the two of them. They are close friends, close siblings, and do not want to leave. Um, And that is how John, we assume, departs. And then, well, we basically, like you said, wrap up John and move over to Daenerys. (laughs) Uh, And we're at the, it's, it's a wedding. Uh, so from this sort of like awful moment that we've just left up in the north in Winterfell, Bran is busted and in a coma. The family is being split apart. John's riding off to the north. The majority of the Stark, they're heading down south. We now go to this sort of festive or somewhat festive moment of Daenerys with Khal Drogo. And we get to experience this sort of uh, interesting interesting cultural moment <laughs> of what a Dothraki wedding is like. We have people being killed. Because a good wedding has at least three, I think, uh, murders. Yeah, otherwise every, it's boring. Yeah, for every good good moment. And mostly we're just watching Daenerys freak out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so we, we start out in the middle of the wedding scene. Um, in effect, we learn that they, uh, Danny and Viserys, have been living at Drogo's mansion in Pentos. When, and he went back out to uh, the Kalasar, 
we learn that the Kalasar is 40,000 warriors plus the rest of a society. So this is huge. And we we had gotten Viserys' mention last time that he'd only need 10,000 to take Westeros. So this really gives us a sense of how enormous this army is. Danny and Viserys are there along with Magister Illyrio, who is still around, and Jorah Mormont, who we met last time too. And we learn that Mormont pledged his loyalty to Viserys uh, between Danny 1 and Danny 2, mm-hmm. and has just been around them ever since then. And the scene that we start out with before we get to the wedding is Viserys once again complaining about Drogo. Uh, he cares less about the wedding, but he really wants this army. And he starts to take issue with the idea that he sold Daenerys and Drogo has not paid yet, mm-hmm. which we start to get a sense is, is a bit of a cultural conflict going on here because Viserys says, I went to the store and I bought an army of Dothraki screamers and uh, I made payment and I haven't gotten delivery yet. And Illyrio and Mormont both push back on him here, uh, Illyrio less carefully than Mormont. Illyrio says, you'll get your crown, but when Drogo decides, first they have to have the wedding, and then they'll go across the plains to go present Daenerys to the Dosh Kaleen at Vestothrak, which is the Dothraki city we heard about last time. And they'll attack when the omens are good for war. And Mormont steps in and tries to say, a lesser man may beg a favor from the call, but must never presume to berate him. And calling Viserys a lesser man is, is the flip of the switch there where Viserys gets mad. The dragon does not beg. And this moment, Danny thinks there are no more dragons, kind of a direct dig at Viserys. And we get her going to sleep and having a dream the night before her wedding. This dream is about a dragon. It starts off with Viserys beating her. She's naked and tries to run away, but in the typical dream sense, she can't run away. Uh, and stumbles and falls down, and he's screaming at her and continuing to beat her. And she feels blood on her thighs, and she closes her eyes and hears a hideous ripping sound and the crackling of some great fire. And when she opens her eyes again, Viserys has been replaced by great columns of flame and a giant dragon who looks at her, which is when she wakes up scared. What did you think about this dream? Let's uh, let's talk about this for a moment. Did this stand out for you in any way? What did you get from it? Why is this here? What's what's going on in Danny's head? I think it's just a young girl freaking the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> I. But that really was it. I mean, again, I'm I, just even from the TV shows. I know where some of this dragon theme is going, mm-hmm. uh, and I assume that there's some sort of like foreshadowing happening with that here. But I think also for this moment in the book. We know she's incredibly young. We know that she is part of, she is a pawn in a lot of ridiculous trading that's going on from a very petulant child of Viserys, uh, child being Viserys, not of Viserys. And we know that she's basically there to be bartered. And I think she kind of understands that as well. The, you know, it, it, it's interesting as as you talk about Viserys bristling and and uh, reacting to being called a lesser man just a moment later, you know, a few paragraphs as we get into the wedding, we even get to watch Viserys get jealous as he watches his sister, the bride of the moment, get gifts. Uh, and he's not getting gifts or attention right now. And uh, and I, I wrote down in my notes, you know, it's Viserys as an idiot. Uh, he, he really yeah. does seem like a bit of a clown, a very angry, very violent, but very clownish type uh, type person right now. Yeah, I'm curious what this dream is telling us about Viserys. So I agree with you that there's definitely a lot of fear for Danny, and certainly the the imagery of almost 
pregnancy around the dragon is interesting as well. But it's Viserys that gets replaced by the dragon. So she she thinks, we, we cut from her thought, there are no more dragons, which is a direct reference to Viserys calling himself dragon. And then mm-hmm. we cut to this dream where he turns into one. And so I wonder if, if some of what we're seeing and some of what Danny is seeing that's being communicated to us is off base here, that there is more to Viserys than meets the eye. I don't know. because I know for me, like uh, reading it, it rem- I was thinking a lot of like how Viserys calls him, like he says, don't wake the dragon. Mm-hmm. Don't make me angry. And so I, th- I thought while I was reading this about the dream that it was a lot more about just how angry he can get, you know, all the way up to that level. Uh, more than I was thinking that maybe he is part dragon or not dragon or, or anything right. like that. But maybe there's, I mean, we hear a lot of animal imagery and adjectives surrounding all of the people in these books related to their sigils. And so maybe there's something to be gained from that, that he associates the dragon with anger. And it seems mm. like in this dream that Danny is doing that as well. So maybe there is some side to this. We certainly haven't seen it from her yet, but that there is a Targaryen anger, Targaryen emotion, fiery nature that is present in the family that the dragon signifies to a certain degree. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, that's that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, and that and that brings us to the wedding. The wedding is very much a party, and it it has a very sort of I don't know how else to say it besides sort of this like ritualistic sort of sense to it. She, Danny has to sit kind of by herself. She doesn't really understand what people are saying to her. It's all in Dothraki. You know, she doesn't get to sit with yeah, her so brother. Specifically, she's sitting with Khal Drogo, who mm-hmm. we learn does not speak any of the same languages that she does. So she's up on this dais with him uh, up at the front of things, which I think is a pretty classic wedding tradition in a lot of different cultures, the, the kind of sweetheart table that they're at. And for her specifically, this means she is entirely isolated because she can't communicate with him and he's busy engaging with the rituals and traditions that he knows about, presumably from many previous weddings that he's been to, Dothraki weddings. But the people that she would be able to talk to are all sitting below her and away from her in a place Mm -hmm. where she can't communicate with them. It's interesting. There's a real sense of isolation that happens that that doesn't get lifted until we actually, she receives Khal Drogo's gift, which we'll get to in a moment. But before getting the Khal's gift uh she actually receives a couple other gifts from Viserys and from uh Illyrio and the first one being sort of from Viserys I think is is it's said is from Viserys although she knows that it's kind of was more Illyrio than Viserys himself but his three maidens each one with a with a a a task to teach her Mm -hmm. Uh, I think one is language one is how to be a woman and how to be a leader is the other one I don't know so uh, so yeah so so there are three women here we have Eri and Jiqui mm -hmm. who are both Dothraki and uh they between them will teach her how to ride because it is such a horse-based culture and how to speak the language right and then the third handmaiden that she's given is dorea who is from lease so this is one of the free cities she is a slave from one of the cities not a dothraki uh, and she is blonde and blue-eyed we hear and she is trained at being a prostitute and will teach danny how to be good in bed the ways of love this wonderfully horrible moment where viserys says don't worry, we know she's good. Me and Magister Illyrio have both tested her out already. Well, you'd hate to give a gift that you don't know if it's good or not. Yeah, it's like, you know, I bought this for myself and I we use it all the time. I'm a big fan of it, so I thought you should have one too. From those gifts and a lot of other gifts that are handed as well, she finally receives the gifts also from Khal Drogo. 
And well, we're this, skipping past a, a, a couple of big ones. Oh, yeah. One bigger than the others here. Well, first, Mormont gives her a set of books. Ah, and Illyrio's gift. I'm sorry. Seven I kingdoms. Right, but yeah. Yeah. This, this next one's pretty important. Illyrio gives her a chest full of nice fabrics and nothing else, right? Uh, I think he also passes three beautiful dragon's eggs. Oh, right. That seems like it could matter. And you know what they say? You can't make a dragon omelet without a few dragon eggs. Uh, <laughs> I wonder how that would taste. Ugh, probably chewy. Um, yeah. But with that said, I, 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 something that I thought he, was um, interesting is yeah, that she doesn't she doesn't recognize them right away. For this family that is, uh, you know, the the blood of the dragon and born of fire and and, and all of these things. Uh, it's interesting to see this 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 gap and not not a totally unheard of or unthinkable gap but a gap nonetheless between the reality of these dragon eggs which are handed as antiques these are you know hardened over time there's nothing that'll come of these uh but she's clearly quite taken to them she clearly finds something very attractive about them and the fact that they are dragon's eggs make them even that much more wonderful um i i had a, a question about this though which was why is illyrio handing over such expensive nice gifts to her uh yeah i mean I we talked surprised. about this before so obviously mm -hmm. this is a, another level even in terms of this being a, a seemingly priceless artifact that in addition to being dragon's eggs it is a, a beautiful art piece it seems and, and really only seems to be for that purpose but mm -hmm. regardless we get the description that they're crazy expensive and this goes along with a lot of other things that illyrio we've seen has done for viserys and danny we heard a story of how the two of them went wandering for a really long time and were largely running out of money. But we meet them after they've been with Illyrio for six months. They've been mm -hmm. living in his house. He's given them clothes. They're waited on by his servants. He's been feeding them. He gave, gave Viserys a sword. And then he arranged this marriage. And, you know, Viserys says he wants to be friends with us because he knows I'll be king someday. There's probably some debt associated with it too. It's not just we'll be king someday, but we'll be I'll be king someday because of Illyrio and will therefore owe him. But you're picking up on something interesting here. What do you think? Is there something more going on to it? Is it the kindness of Illyrio's heart? I don't know, to be quite honest. I, it, it, nothing about what Illyrio has done or has been so far in this book makes me think there's too much kindness in him at all he really seems to be very uh sort of calculated about what it is he's trying to accomplish and what he might get from it I think it's part of the reason that this sort of really stood out for me was you know that that this didn't seem to be anything of value for Cal Drogo or something that Viserys would like a lot and I don't know why Illyria would care too much about Daenerys or what she likes or doesn't like Right. It does mention that these are inert, you know, they're just jewels. Yeah, they're just, yeah. you know, paperweights, really. But I do wonder, part of me got to wondering, like, maybe he is a believer in in the Targaryen, you know, right to the throne. Maybe yeah. there is a part of him that really does think that, like, you know what, like, these are, you know, useless out of their league, you know, down on their luck, descendants of the of the Targaryen, you know, you know, uh, uh, monarchy. But that there is still a little bit of favor to be owed to them. There is still a yeah. little bit of of uh, of giving that they deserve to receive. And, you know, that puts into perspective that line from Daenerys 1, where Viserys is talking about how sure he is that there are people waiting for them to come home. And that seemed 
like bluster and mm-hmm. grandiosity that was useless, but it, you have to imagine that there's some reality to that somewhere, just based on our experiences in the real world, that people have political allegiances. And you pointed out before, which I think is absolutely appropriate and correct, that it is material influences and material desires that dictate a lot of these things. But there are also relationships. There are people who had ties, family ties, really emotional ties, political ties to the Targaryen dynasty, presumably. And, you know, so who knows what reasons people might have to potentially support them if they find power again. Actually, I have more to say on that in the next chapter where we'll, I know okay. we'll get, you know, in a minute. But yeah, but I, I agree. I agree with all of that. Yeah. Um, but with that, she does receive these as the gifts. Uh, she gets a handful more gifts. And then she gets this beautiful, beautiful horse from Khal Drogo. Yes. Uh, and we find that she's she's quite the rider. I well, is she quite the rider, or is this just a really great horse? It, <laughs> it, it honestly seems like it could go either way. I wouldn't be shocked sure. to, to hear that she has the training of uh, nobility, even having been in the in exile, that she would still get that training. But I mean, they say repeatedly, this is the best horse in the stable. This is an amazing one. It's beautiful. It runs like the wind and so maybe the horse is doing more of the work than she is here that's quite 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 a reality but i i think too that whether horse or her this is the first time we've seen her not afraid that she she really finds herself comfortable for the first moment uh that we've gotten to know her and that comfort comes with it's a silly way to phrase it but that comfort seems to come with really intense power uh, this is a strong horse. This is a horse that really knows what it's doing and, and can kind of take care of business. And she seems really comfortable there. Where you know, kind of u- using that kind of uh, to to contrast the sort of bluster of Viserys. To take your word from a moment ago, uh, but not really that much power. In fact, you know, she knows that the sword on his hip is actually Illyrio's. Not he doesn't really know how to use it, and you know, she knows that this guy's yelling all the time but not really accomplishing much he's talking about paranoia about spies and all this but she's not seeing any of them but all of a sudden she gets something that's actually very powerful uh and and naturally powerful and she seems really all of a sudden to the nerves go away she really seems to be in her element with that yeah and i think that's a perfect transition to the last scene of this episode which is another Mm -hmm. context where she expects to be afraid and expects to be scared but turns into something more comfortable uh, her and Drogo leave together after the sun goes down. Um, we actually get a specific reference that I wanted to point out before this, that she gets back from her little ride and says, tell Cal Drogo that he has given me the wind. And she sees Drogo smile for the first time. And immediately upon his smile, the sun vanishes behind the city. Yeah, I, I was too focused on the sex. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so then they leave together, and uh, she gets afraid again, and they ride far away from the Dothraki horde uh, and start to get undressed together. They have a conversation where the only word he knows and repeats over and over again is <laughs> no, no, <laughs> which she at times says back to him. Uh, but he slowly coaxes her, makes sure she's comfortable and is is very gentle, and they eventually have sex for the first time. I really do think that there's something and going off of what I talked about with the horse and some stuff that we talked about before, but it's, it's interesting to see, I'm going to say this and then take it back and try to rephrase it. It's interesting to see Daenerys coming into her own 
uh, really, now that there's a little bit of distance between her and her brother, she's not under this sort of established idea that she's the baby sister anymore. In fact, now she's a wife. And in fact, more than that, now she's she's a queen. Uh, whether Viserys likes it or not, she really is now married into this sort of royal aspect of the Dothraki. But I'll say too that I think it just really speaks to to her character that maybe more than it's her coming into her own, she's finally put in a position where her ability to own herself and own what's happening around her is finally like given free reign and she's mm -hmm. using it and she's using it in the best of ways. I'll be honest, it, it wouldn't have surprised me if this sex scene was much more violent and she was just victimized throughout it. And it, yeah. it wasn't, there was a lot of affection there in, in the greatest of ways. And I, I think it really worked. Yeah. That's, that's part of the theme that I wanted to talk about here as well, because the language used throughout this scene is the opposite of violent. It is gentle. Mm -hmm. It is caring all of those aspects. And it's important to me to register this through the frame that we are getting this through her eyes, which I think helps us understand her comfort. And like you were just saying, coming to her own in it, but you take that lens off and look at it from the outside. And she is very much so a child in a situation with a strong man who can't understand her and could overpower her if he wanted to. And that raises certainly a lot of questions about consent and even her ability to consent here. Uh, that I think we're supposed to pick up on, even though it's not directly communicated from her point of view. Mm -hmm. And specifically in that vein, the TV show did this scene as a violent rape scene, oh, which is not what it was in the books. And they certainly received some criticism for the choice to introduce sexual violence into a scene that did not have it in that explicit sense. And I think that that criticism was understandable. But I, I do think it picks up on something beyond the surface level of what we're reading on the page there. And there's a second part of this chapter, which has a similar dynamic going to it. And I think the two work together, which is this is our first real introduction to the Dothraki as a people. Mm -hmm. And George R. R. Martin has been criticized surrounding the Dothraki and in general for, for various populations in the continent of Essos for a variety of Orientalism, that you have these darker-skinned, copper-skinned peoples who are very much so other and different from the European-based Westerosi that we're used to. And I think that criticism is definitely warranted and very fair and, and is not something that I'm expert to speak to. But in this specific context of, of Danny's wedding that she is watching as a, a young woman, in terms of how I like to think about it, even younger in terms of the age she is assigned in the books. Mm -hmm. And I always focus on the fact that we're getting her interpretation of events around her. And so while we as readers are seeing this through a lens of an other. It seems clear to me that Danny is also perceiving it that way. Yeah, I like that. And that this is a lot of stuff that she is not used to. Uh, and whether it was intentionally meant that way or not, that's the way that I perceive this. And you get that a lot through the language throughout this chapter in the descriptions of the Dothraki and the descriptions of Khal Drogo, which I'll get to in a moment, uh, where we really see explicit how easy it is to transform something from normal to abnormal. So we start off by hearing how afraid Danny is, which is a theme throughout most of this chapter, except for the parts that you were mentioning. She was afraid of the Dothraki, whose ways seemed alien and monstrous, as if they were beasts in human skins and not true men at all. That is, is the most othering. It is stripping them of their very humanity, that this is not what she's used to. But the specific events that go on throughout this wedding, with one exception that I'll get to, uh, 
is framed in such a way so as to make us feel even more separate from it. This is a culture that is heavily based around horses and riding and everything they have uh, materially comes from that. They eat horse flesh, which is a tough name for a food for us. We are used to, you know, the French derived names for meat, uh, you know, beef and pork and venison. We're Burgers. Eating, yeah, we don't eat cow flesh or pig right. flesh. Uh, and similarly, we hear descriptions of their clothes are horse hair and painted leather vests, which, you know, they're painted, they're not dyed. It's not cotton, it's sheep's hair. This is such an easy way to make us feel separate from what's going on. Hmm. And then you get it made explicit by Illyrio, who is very much so part of that, you know, Western white tradition. Uh, he's not Westerosi, but he seems to fit in well. He mentions, you know, yeah, they have sex a bunch in public at these things. It's savage. They have no sense of sin or shame. And like not having a sense of sin or shame around sex seems like probably a good thing. And it's presented to us as this dis disgusting barbarian way. Yeah, how very unpuritanical of you, Dan. Yeah. The, the, Crucial exception here that I have no explanation for is the violence. Uh, we have a series of murders. I think they say there are 12 different people who die over the course of this. And this just seems uh, horrifying and, and wasteful, at least. I mean, this is these people don't need to die. This is a celebration, a happy moment. You're not enemies in any sense. I mean, who knows if anybody ever needs to die in, in violent settings like this, but certainly here. Uh, so I don't have a way to sort that into what I'm talking about. But I see this sex scene at the end of the chapter as in a similar vein as the rest of it. Going back to Daenerys 1, she sees Drogo as this monster, as this giant, scary, violent man who has no emotion. And right at the end of this chapter, we get him smiling for the first time. And then this, this nice, sensitive sex scene. You know, and similar to with the Dothraki, that you know she is seeing it as violent and alien, she is able to get past that with Drogo, and so it's interesting to think about where that might head in the future for her relationship to the society as a whole. Something that you said, I hadn't thought about it when I was reading, but I really love the way that you're saying it. But it was this sort of uh, looking at Daenerys as maybe another version of the sort of Tyrion and John John Snow style of characters. This is somebody who has a unique perspective that doesn't 100% mesh with the the situation at hand. Viserys, it meshes. Viserys is, you know, he demands to be king. You know, he he demands to to say this is what I this is what's owed to me. But Daenerys seems to have this perspective from the side. You know, this is the world that I'm thrust into. How do I work with the things in front of me much more than how do I get what I think I deserve? And so that's really I hadn't thought about it, but it's interesting to see, you know, these three characters kind of floating up to the surface a little bit. They're not the Ned Stark. They're not the Robert Baratheons. They're not even like a Jamie Lannister's type of character, you know, but much more these sort of unique thinking, you know, characters across the spectrum of everyone that we've met saying not everything will always be how it is. I need to understand the moment where I am. And I think she does that really well. And I'm excited to see her relationship to everyone mature as we read more. I'm really excited to see where her character goes. Yeah. So just one final note on this chapter and a little bit of world building, which we haven't had a ton of this episode, but we get the reference to Vase Dothrak, which I believe is not the first time we've heard about it, but it's uh, just a quick reference. And this is the Dothraki city. They are usually a nomadic people, but they have one central spot 
which is very core to their culture and religion. Uh, the Doshkalin, who are mentioned by name, are religious figures who are based in in Istothrak. Uh, and this is located well across the continent. There are plains past the free cities, and they're very huge. And Vistothrak is in the middle of those plains, so well off to the east. Boring. I don't give a shit about maps. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, good, it's good. It's good to know. But that takes us really to the end of this chapter for Daenerys. We've, we've had these couple chapters up in the north. We've now seen Daenerys and this wedding, and we're starting to see this maturation of the Daenerys character while others such as Viserys uh, are sort of staying where they are and who their character is uh, and from that we actually quickly quickly turn back to the north the next chapter and and this this will kind of wrap us out for for this episode but the final chapter that we read for this one was Eddard two maybe three yes. it's two no, I'm glad you're kidding yes um and and this is a an interesting it's it's a short chapter again there's not a ton that happens, it's, but it's a good, interesting conversation that sh sheds a little bit of light that I, some of which I was surprised to hear. Um, this is Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon are leaving the north to start heading down south back to yeah, King's Landing. So to be clear, I, I think they've already been on the road for a little while. Uh, they're still in the north, but as we've heard, the north is very big. Uh, but so they're somewhere along on their trip in an unnamed northern location. Mm-hmm. And the king has actually requested that he and Ned are riding kind of separately from the entire retinue. Uh, they're out ahead. In fact, he kind of even, this goes back to some of his more, his being the king's more boorish attributes. I don't want to be in the comfort of this caravan. You know, leave that to the Circes. I want to be a man and yeah, go riding. I'm riding. And during this ride, it, it, it's really just a very direct conversation between the two of them. And in fact, a little more direct than I think the two of them have had yet in this book. We have the king continues to stand by some of, uh, you know, some some of his attitudes already denoted, right? He's saying, you know, I'm here. He kind of seems, and, and and feel free to correct me if I'm going off track here, but in, in my mind, what I'm hearing from him is a lot of what we heard, which is almost this this Viking-like attitude. I came to conquer, and I conquered, and I'm here for spoils now. You know, like like leave leave all this garbage politics to others. I am here for for what I deserve. Yeah, we have a moment early in the chapter that I really like, which is just Robert fantasizing. He's daydreaming about leaving it all behind and going off on the road. Two vagabond knights, our swords at our sides, and the gods know what in front of us. Maybe a farmer's daughter or a tavern wench to warm our beds tonight. He's all about <laughs> the, the simple pleasures with the emphasis much more on pleasures than on simple. Um, and, and this is the life that he wishes he was leading now, away from the king's court and all of the intrigue that comes along with that we have a little bit more you know as a continuation from that but a little bit more of ned and his reactions to conversations about the woman he slept with that led to Jon snow uh he's very prickly about that so prickly that uh robert even says maybe you want to change your change your sigil to a uh, i think it's a, a hamster a porcupine Something. hamsters aren't prickly michael well if they look prickly from a distance I, I, I guess I don't know. I think it was a hedgehog. It's a Pikachu. I. Uh, uh, but then they, they we we actually learned something really interesting, which is that we learned that a character that we've met before in the Daenerys chapters is actually well on the radar 
Well, no, we can't skip past the discussion of John's mother here. Okay. This is this is important. I agree. You're you're 100 right that Ned's being very say, prickly about say, it. Say say yeah. And you know, Robert at one point says, "You were never the boy you were," which is a fun thing. That's how they get into it. Uh, Robert spends a little bit trying to remember what the woman's name was and lists off a bunch of women who it seems pretty clear <laughs> are Robert's hookups. But the most important part of all of this is Ned gives us a name here. And it's not a name we had heard before. He says the woman's name was Wyla and then shuts down the conversation. So he he offers that up. So, you know, before now, the only name we had heard linked to John was Ashara Dane, which you immediately adopted as your stance here. But now Ned is offering something else up that we know nothing about and we get no information on. So is this real? Is this Ned being honest and we're getting an answer to it that he wouldn't give Catelyn? Is this Ned trying to get Robert to shut up? What's your take here? I'm actually so glad you mentioned that because I came across the name Willa, uh, which is the name that's brought up here. And yeah, Willa or Wyla. I don't know. Damn these pronunciations. Uh, But I will say that I read it and my first instinct was to think that I wasn't remembering how she was referred to earlier in the book, much more than this is a different name. So Ashara Dane has come up before. I thought maybe this was a version of that name. But with that said, honestly, and as you're saying it now, I wonder if Ned has a, uh, here he's portrayed to us as a very honorable man and look at how how strong he stands by this woman or whatever. But I wonder, maybe he's a little less honorable than we think. Maybe he's sleeping with a lot of women. You think maybe he doesn't remember which one it was? Well, yeah, well, I even say it. Yeah, but it's like, you know, like, hey, you know, don't tell me I'm not a a righteous man when it comes to women. I care for the one that I slept with, even though I slept with another one the next day. And but each of them mean a lot to me. So I just, I wonder if there's that little bit of hubris there. Okay, I like Uh, that. That's, That's a fun take. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I do know the only other thing that I'd mention, especially obviously as you're bringing it up, is that Ashara Dane and the Dane, I think another Dane was mentioned as well, but mentioned Arthur as, Dane. Yeah, yeah. as part of lore. Uh, and all that we heard really about Ashara Dane yeah. before is rumors were spread about this uh, and that Ned shut those rumors down much more than he was confessing to like that having been the person. So I wonder if this is a more honest conversation about who this woman was that he slept with and that the Ashara Dane was just rumors that he sh- and he shut down as rumors sake didn't matter who the woman was but from that I want to talk about Sir Jorah Mormont yes I, about Sir Jorah Mormont well I'm saying his name right so I'm already feeling good but uh you know what's funny is actually I want to talk larger than just Sir Jorah Mormont Sir Jorah Mormont is someone that we just talked about in the Daenerys chapter in fact during Daenerys 1 and Daenerys 2, we find out that he really swore allegiance to Viserys and the Targaryens during all this. And we find out here that he, in fact, is a spy. And something that I thought was really interesting, because it comes a spy for Robert Baratheon, right? Like a spy for, yes. for the current king. But something that comes out during this dialogue between Robert and Ned Stark is that things that Viserys Targaryen was being paranoid about, we find out are actually things that he needs to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. That Robert Robert Baratheon is following the Targaryens, that there are houses that were loyal to the Targaryens, and more than that might still be loyal to the Targaryens. And that, in fact, Robert bemoans the fact that he didn't murder these two children when he had the opportunity. Now they're with the Dothraki, which Ned is quick to say, don't worry, they don't like the ocean, they're not going to, you know, swim across the ocean, they're not going to sail across the ocean to get you. But but Robert has gone from 
this sort of like extreme Viking king to actually somebody who seems a little more astute to the politics that are going on, uh, to, you know, what he thinks well, that's, is... That's an interesting description because we've gotten this side of Robert before when he talked about how he wishes he could have killed Rhaegar multiple times over uh, and once wasn't good enough. There's maybe some political savvy to it. And we certainly just discussed, and I was prompting you on the idea that maybe there were these houses that were still looking after them, or Magister Illyrio was looking after them and politically interested in returning them to the throne. And I think that there's some reality to that. But at the same time, uh, we don't necessarily have indications of that in a concrete sense so far outside of Illyrio. And Robert is nonetheless giving into this bloodlust and responding to what seems to be not an acute threat. So there's some, it can be a little bit of both, I guess is what I'm saying here. Sure. There's some political savvy to it in terms of worrying and trying to, to cut mm -hmm. off a rebellion before it starts, but that it is also so driven by his emotion from the previous war and how he still internalizes, still holds on to those incredibly strong uh, feelings of rage and anger towards these children who were literally one of them wasn't even born yet when right. the war was being fought. And I think, yeah, and I think that more of my comment about political astuteness had more to do with the fact that he's aware of their whereabouts and aware that they're still out there and aware of a potential threat more than he's like finger on the pulse of politics. Yes. Um, but I thought that was, it, it was just interesting because all of a sudden it kind of cast Viserys in a bit of a different light. Viserys, who was this paranoid, you know, youngin, you know, yeah. uh, whippersnapper who's, you know, talking more, more to keep using the word, more bluster than anything else. It actually turns out that whether he knows it or not, Viserys knows it or not, that he's actually hitting on a lot of the things that are being thought about by his enemies. Yeah. Uh, My last brief thing on this, you, you also have to remember that Viserys has several years on Danny, mm -hmm. and you have mm -hmm. to, I assume at least that these types of assassination attempts and interest in the Targaryens mattered a lot more in the years right after the rebellion than they do now. So we got that thought from Danny in her first chapter about, you know, Viserys always talked about the assassins and she had never seen them. And some of that might just be literally because she had never seen them. Whereas he was seven, eight, nine years old and saw a bunch of them and she was too young to realize what was going on and that it's fallen off over time until we get to this right. moment of recruiting the Dothraki that prompts Robert to want to get more involved again. It's just a thought. I like that. I like that. I don't have much more to say about the conversation around Robert Baratheon's, you know, where his mind is about the Targaryens. You know, he yeah. clearly is aware of them. He knows the wedding's going on. He has a spy in place. It doesn't sound like the spy has any command to go murder anybody right now. It's just informational and, you know, just part of what it means to be a king. Uh, and I'm not sure if you had more to add there. I am excited for the conversation that's about to happen between these two characters regarding the Lannisters. Yeah, so before we get to the Lannisters, although these two things go together, I think it's important to talk about Ned's reaction here, because he tries to convince Robert not to do anything about mm -hmm. Daenerys, and we get some backstory on why. Uh, Ned thinks back to the war, and specifically the Lannisters killing Rhaegar's wife and children. And it, we have this line, Ned had named that murder, Robert called it war. But there was this really violent killing of these two young babies, which are, are Danny and Viserys's niece and nephew. Uh, an infant, uh, a toddler and an infant, really. And it's it's horribly violent in the description here. And Ned had hated it. And Robert, who 
had wanted to kill all of the Targaryens was supportive and thought that this was a good thing that the Lannisters had done. And it got so bad that Ned left to go deal with the remnants of the war. And they didn't reconcile until Lyanna died and that brought them back together again. Mm -hmm. And Ned thinks on all of that backstory and then tries to approach effectively the same argument, what he feels is the same argument over again here from a different perspective and tries to convince Robert not to do it. And he brings, you know, they have this back and forth here where Ned says, you're no Tywin Lannister to slaughter innocents, which I think is a pretty poor first move uh, when he's trying to avoid the previous conversation. It's the first thing he mentions is what happened last time. Robert emphasizes Danny isn't going to stay a child. She's married now. She's going to start having children who are potential competitor heirs to his throne. Uh, Ned calls the idea unspeakable in response to this. So he's really just coming from the moral argument. And that riles Robert up even more. And he goes and on this rant. Interesting to see the parallel between Robert's thinking and Catelyn's from earlier about Jon Snow. Oh, great call. Yeah. Because yeah, she was also saying, you know, well, you know, you give him space, you give him land. Maybe he doesn't want to revolt against, you know, you, his father or his father's heirs or whatever. But maybe the children might one day want that. And so just interesting to catch that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yes. And so Robert goes on this rant. What Eris did to your brother Brandon was unspeakable. The way your Lord father died, that was unspeakable. And Rhaegar, how many times do you think he raped your sister? How many hundreds of times? So we've heard references to Rhaegar with a woman and certainly uh, Robert's reaction in the crypts indicated that there was some relationship between Rhaegar there. But this is really our first mention of Rhaegar and Lyanna's having mm -hmm. any sort of contact with each other, which really helps put into perspective, I think, Robert's anger and fury towards the Targaryens as a whole and towards Rhaegar in particular. But it's interesting to see Ned not have yeah, that I was same say, fiery reaction. Ned, Ned even goes, and I, I want to come back to this, like I'm not trying to skip by what you're saying, but, but Ned even seems to take it kind of the opposite. He's very critical about the Lannister strategy and tactics during this period of the war. You know, what seems so personable, personal to uh, Robert Baratheon, to the king right now, uh, really seems much more in a sort of like larger macro political context, even though it still includes the intimate relations for Ned Stark, uh, the same, if not more so than it did for Robert. So I, I don't I don't have answers to that. It, it is interesting. I do wonder if Ned has, you know, I think we talked about this in the first episode, but just like you know, everybody has their own bias about their own opinions and things. I do wonder if Ned has some type of perspective or deeper understanding of, you know, what, well, maybe it's even a better way to say it is not perspective or deeper understanding, but has his own unique perspective on these situations. Yeah. What one person calls a, you know, treachery is another person saying, no, 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 that's how we act here. This is what, yeah, this is a part of, and, and, you know, cultures are different. And, but I don't know, it's hard to have any sense of who's right, who's wrong. And in fact, I'd go on to say that the rest of the conversation in this chapter speaks a lot to that. You have Ned Stark talking about these sort of awful strategies, these really despicable strategies from the Lannisters. They won by treachery, not by good tactics. They, yeah. you know, they had sworn allegiance. And I was surprised by this too, because, you know, as much as we've heard Jamie Lannister referred to as Kingslayer, that he had been part of that King's Guard, I didn't realize how enmeshed. Jamie was with the situation that was going yeah. on. I didn't realize how much the Lannisters were a part of the Targaryen rule. And just it, it wasn't just that they were out far away at a distance and didn't feel like riding in to come and help at that moment. 
they wanted to play the political moment in a way that I did, you know, with a level of intelligence that I didn't realize was going on. And yeah. Ned's fury towards the Lannisters starts to make a lot more sense to me because it seems to be rooted in these are people with no commitment. These are people that say that they're on a side and yet they're not standing up to their commitment. So if they turned on the last ones, what's to stop them from turning on the on the now ones? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a concern embodied by Jamie as the Kingslayer and the Lannisters as a whole. And I, I think that that's a real part of it. And you also have so much coming from Ned's relationship with honor that we've heard a lot about him. But I also have to wonder, you know, you said it's hard to tell who's right. I wonder how much this is competing reactions and different reactions to trauma that you have mm. Robert who saw violence uh, perpetrated against people he loved, specifically Liana, and then, you know, also Ned's family kind of as a surrogate thing and has reacted with this fury and anger and wants to return the violence. And Ned here is describing these horrible acts of violence were, that were committed by people ostensibly on his side. And right. that for him seeing that cycle of violence and that next stage to it, maybe that almost even made it worse. He lost his dad and his brother and his sister, but seeing it put then onto the Targaryens, onto Rhaegar's wife and children, and now onto Daenerys and Viserys is not helping the problem for him. And that he, that becomes the line too far that he's unwilling to continue things. You know, Robert actually has a line here that I really like that I highlighted uh, that I think speaks really well, especially into your term, bring up trauma, you know, but basically Robert's, you know, Ned is telling Robert, you won, you won the war already. Like, let it, let it go. Right. Like, yeah. like, and Ned turns. I'm sorry. And Robert turns around and says back to Ned, it was a hollow victory. It was a hollow victory. They gave me a crown, but it was the girl I prayed them for your sister safe and mine again, as she was meant to be. I ask you, Ned, what good is it to wear a crown? The gods mock the prayers of kings and cowherds alike. Yeah. And and it's just, you know, for all of this politicking that Ned is doing and thinking and what's appropriate and what's not, we really get the sense of deep, deep emotional pain that Robert had and still has uh, from the traumas that came, that led to the war and came out of the war. And it, it's... Again, interesting to find myself as a reader starting to flip-flop a little bit. Whose side am I really on about some of these things? Ned, who was so honorable early on and showed yeah. so much sort of poise and demeanor, now is becoming kind of a bit of a politician to me. Oh, let's just take what we've got. Everybody's happy, right? And then you have on this side, Robert, who was this, this Viking, you know, strong-headed, not paying attention to situations has real emotions behind what his actions are and what he was doing and where he finds himself now in ways that are surprising and refreshing, uh, especially as a reader, right? And and so I just, I'll, I'll just go on to say, you know, after that quote, they talk for just another moment, but it ends, the chapter ends with Ned feeling totally defeated. He yeah. cannot get through to his friend about stability. His friend is emotionally heated. And there's a lot of you know, what seems like the rumblings of turmoil, even if it's just emotional, just hearing how Robert's thinking and reacting to situations right now. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. That, that comes off the back of a second half sort of to the conversation that's intertwined with it, where they bring up the warden of, a, of the East again. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. So so just want to put that out there. And, and we've been referencing a lot of the conversation here because it overlaps so heavily with the discussion of Daenerys. But Ned brings this back up because Robert Aaron, the child, would be the next in line for it, typically, and says, 
it, you know, Ned points out that it would usually be him, but if he wants somebody older, that he should try giving it to Stannis, his brother, who proved himself at the Siege of Storm's End. Robert gets weird about it, and Ned immediately correctly guesses that Robert already gave it to Jamie. Right. And so this is where we get into the conversation about how the Lannisters acted separate from the murders, and we get this story about Jamie, Jamie's treachery and the Lannisters' treachery in general. How and. and Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add the extra context, right? That we're talking about the the warden of the West, but then we also find out that it's Tywin Lannister, the father, who's the warden of the East, and that now you're going to have no the opposite. So Tywin is the warden of the West because the Lannisters okay. are the liege lords of the Westerlands, right? And then the Eyrie is on the East Coast, and they need a new warden of the East. And now he's giving it to Jamie. So now the Lannisters control half the kingdom, West and East. And Ned is quick to point out. One day Tywin will pass away, and more likely than not, it will be Jamie who will control both East and West when that comes and sort of flank like sort of the heart of this land. And I just thought that was interesting to, to, to yeah. throw in. Yeah. And so Ned shares specifically the story that makes him not trust the Lannisters at all. And this is the first time we get this so concretely, uh, where after the Trident, which was the battle where Robert killed Rhaegar. Uh, so killed the crown prince and broke the biggest army that the Targaryens had. Robert was recovering because he had been wounded in that fight, and Ned uh, chased the remnants of the army back to King's Landing. And by the time he got there, the Lannisters had taken the city. Uh, they were let in, though, because they didn't have to actually besiege it. They were let in by Aerys, who thought that Tywin Lannister was there to join his side and help him. They opened the gates. The Lannisters violently sacked the city despite being let in, having no fighting. A couple of the Lannister men killed Rhaegar's wife and children, and Jaime murdered the king. And so Ned arrives to the city to find this destruction going on, to find Jaime in the throne room with the king that he was sworn to protect, dead in a pool of his blood on the floor, and Jaime sitting on the throne. Sitting is, on the throne. This is beyond the pale for Ned, and, and it still troubles him to this day. Jaime just kind of stares at him and then gets up and makes a joke. I was just keeping it warm for Robert. I don't really want it. And Robert says, yeah, that's fine. I don't care. The throne right. sucks. Uh, Jamie didn't do anything wrong. He was probably tired and wanted somewhere to sit down. And all of this is stupid politics that I don't want to have to deal with. It's as tedious as counting coppers. And that's when he rides away. And like I said, the chapter really ends with this sort of deflation from Ned, this real sense of, of uncertainty of what he could possibly do to help move the situation in a forward direction, open his friend's eyes to the Lannisters' sort of treachery, opens his friend's eyes to the fact that the war's over, that the, the bloodlust needs to die down. Whether this is right or wrong is different, but he, as a character, seems to be really feeling this sense of utter hopelessness uh, that's coming out of this. Yeah. And that generally wraps us up for this one. I have one final world building mention because we got an introduction of a character here who I want to highlight for you. Mm -hmm. This was our first mention of Lord Varys, who is Robert's yes. spymaster. Ah, didn't even talk so, about Varys. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the main story there was the information, the intel he was getting from Jorah Mormont. Um, but 
we heard that that was routed to him through this guy who was in charge of Intel for the king. Uh, so that's an interesting little note there. And, and crucially, yeah, he also, oops. is this what you were about to say? I think so. Go ahead, say it. He uh, he was inherited from the Mad King. Right. So much like the Lannisters were intertwined with that regime before they became a central part of Robert's regime, this is another example of somebody who had been in service to the Mad King, to Aerys Targaryen before, and then was kept around as part of Robert's court. And I wonder, just as a parting thought here, but you know, already I was talking and we talked about these sort of outlier style characters. There are situations and there's a lot of characters that are, have their place in situations. And then you have these outlier characters. So we talked about we talked about Tyrion, we talked about Jon Snow, we talked about Daenerys. And I wonder, there's only been a mention of Varys now, but I wonder if Varys might fall into something like this as well. Here's a character who doesn't seem to have a political side, but is just a high-level spy master. And to how do you replace a spy master? So, but all you know, he's not there because the flag is waving that he stands with, as far as I can tell, in the two sentences said about him. But he's right. there out of precedent, out of being the incumbent. So I'm I'm very interested to find out more about this Varus character. Is he duplicitous? Is he just committed to his job? Does he just love spying? Is he self-serving? Yeah, yeah exactly. So it'll be it'll be a lot of fun to check it out. Absolutely. So that's all we got here. Uh, for next week, we'll do three ep- three chapters, not three Perfect. episodes. One episode, three chapters. So <laughs> that will bring us through Tyrion 2, Catelyn 2, and Sansa 1. We get a new POV introduced. I love it. Well, Dan, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. I'm looking forward to uh, to reading the next couple cha- chapters and uh, and continuing this conversation. All right. Talk to you then. All right. So that's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing A Game of Thrones Tyrion 2, Catelyn 2, and Sansa 1. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. And thanks, as always, for listening.